You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Today we open up the Brewer's Mailbag to field your questions about Modern and Pioneer. We talk about the most powerful cards that no one is playing, tips for more effective testing, and picks of the week with the latest tournament technology. That's all coming up on Faithless Brewing. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am David Robertson, coming to you from a chilly Twin Cities afternoon here, and I am joined by the CEO of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. He is Cave Dan Online, Daniel Schriever. What's going on, my friend? Hello, hello, David. Good to see you. How you doing? I'm well. Thanksgiving is uh, in the books. Just a little three-week grind until Christmas break starts, so just trying to make it through. In your household, does the Christmas music start on Thanksgiving Day? Mariah Carey, that kind of thing. <laughs> I send, on December 1, I send to my one buddy who loves All I Want for Christmas is You. I send him the video like <laughs> when I wake up on December 1st and, and tell him it's time. And he gets really excited. <laughs> but we, what we normally do is we put on the um, Peanuts Christmas song while we decorate the tree. So I just picked up the tree yesterday. Uh, but Katie's sick, so we'll probably have that fired up uh, tomorrow. But the Peanuts Christmas is is an awesome soundtrack. You know, I don't think I've ever actually seen that. At least not as a what? sentient adult. You're from Minnesota, dude. Charles Schultz went to our high school. <laughs> Bad form. <laughs> that this this is uh, we might have to cancel the podcast. What the hell? I mean. The thing is, like, the Mariah comics... Chris, Mar- Mariah Carey Christmas, yes. <laughs> Peanuts Christmas, no. Mariah Carey is a national treasure. Peanuts is, like, not that... The comic strips never struck me as being that funny. They were not the ones that I was excited to read as a kid. Like, I would go to Calvin and Hobbes, right? Peanuts was just yeah. sort of like a, like a legacy comic strip. You could tell that Charles Schultz was from a different era. Yeah, like, by the time we were reading comics whatever when we were 10 i'll just say speak for myself in the early 90s late 80s yeah charles schultz had definitely lost his fastball but the modern comic strip is basically just created in his image like from 1965 Mm. to 1980 let's say uh i mean he's certainly the the greatest uh comic strip author of all time and it's just like i mean again it also appeals to my values like he is just a super like the the master secular humanist in the style of like a Kurt Vonnegut or whatever. Uh, but he was also just sort of like tinged with the existential despair. Like we think of it now, like, oh, Snoopy, like doing Joe Cool. Like there was an entire week long thing where a school was going to commit suicide. It just. Wait, what? And Linus, Linus tried to talk. He, the school had a personality and was thinking about killing itself. Oh and Linus God. tried to convince him not to do it. It's just like. What? When you're young, you just read it and you're like, oh, this is kind of a funny thing. And just like, wow, it's. 
And Charlie Brown himself is like almost like a meditation on like what it means to have earthly desires, right? He desires <laughs> to fall in love with a redheaded girl and he desires to be the star of the baseball game. And none of these things ever happens for him. There's, there's just a lot like subconsciously happening. I think to your point, by the time we were young men, it had been cheapened in, in a bunch of different ways. But uh, I, I will ride or die for Charles Schultz. And uh, I think, again, I, I do not believe in that Jesus is the son of God or whatever, but even his humanistic sort of secular processing of Jesus's teachings I found to be very inspiring in the same way that Vonnegut often approvingly quotes uh, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. So if you like Kurt Vonnegut, and I know a lot of people do uh, in our in our discourse, uh, Discord, I highly recommend maybe checking out some old school uh, Peanuts cartoons. I think you'll find a lot there. It's a lot deeper than the Camp Snoopy nonsense that Dan correctly points out is a little gross. <laughs> Although now it's not even Camp Snoopy. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> I think it's Nickelodeon now in the yeah. Mall of America. Yeah, time moves moves on. But, okay, what does the football represent in this kind of Freudian analysis of Peanuts? Well, it's his desire to trust, right? Like, Lucy is his friend. And so each time it's still him believing in the best of people, sort of that famous Anne Frank quote right at the end, at the, at the end of it all, I, I believe in the best of people. And every time he's taught a harsh lesson about <laughs> the nature of man. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Well, that's an interesting uh, endorsement for Peanuts at the start of the Christmas season. I think I got to check this out. And even if you don't want to watch the Peanuts special or read Peanuts comics, the Peanuts Christmas special, with uh, Vincent Garaldi's jazz piano is absolutely spectacular. So I highly recommend that maybe you don't celebrate Christmas, maybe you don't decorate a tree. If you're in Israel like Dan, there aren't that many Christians. Um, but you can just fire it up anyway. It's not particularly overtly Christmassy. It's got a lot of uh, jazz piano happening. So just a nice way to wake up on a Sunday morning, maybe. There is a Christmas season here. I'm, I'm in Jerusalem until the end of this month. And... I'm told this hasn't happened quite yet, but there's going to be like a influx of Christmas pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, coming to Bethlehem even. We'll see how that all goes. There's a lot of Christmas trees up around. Frankincense, myrrh, you know, it's all, it's all out there. Exactly. Exactly. So in the spirit of Christmas, I mean, we got a total grab bag of stuff today. Bit of a shorter episode. I mean, we did a lot of brewing in our Monday episode. We brewed up, we're magicked out, all right? We've played our third path <laughs> lists. We brewed up combat thresher lists. Today, we're just going to take it easy. Um, got some questions from the Discord, opening up the mailbag, and we've picked out a couple interesting deck lists from the leagues that uh, kind of caught our eyes. So we'll have a couple picks of the week. Before we jump into the program, just a quick reminder at the top that if you enjoy the show, and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is by joining our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. Make a pledge at any tier you're comfortable with that really helps us out, goes a long way, helps us keep the show going, and gives you some perks as well. You get immediate access to our Discord community. We also have bonus content and little perks like you get to vote for our monthly projects. Um, the vote is ongoing. I think it'll be open for another day or two after this episode comes out. And that, incidentally, is the first question I want to start with, because, David, you were not here when Emmy, Zach, and Brian talked over the cars nominated this time. There were 14 of them, and I'm curious. If you had to vote, right? Most people have cast their ballots already, so don't, don't worry. Exit polls are 
not officially influence. <laughs> there are no Twitter leaks about uh, influencing the vote. Exactly. So just your honest opinion, right? You can pick three cards out of the 14 to vote for. What do you think? What do you like of these cards? Gix, Yawgmoth Praetor would be my number one. I think this card's like legitimately super powerful. I'm surprised. I don't know anything about standards. So I'd be surprised if this card just wasn't making awesome standard decks. I think it works with a bunch of different cards. It works with double strike cards. It works with cards that make two creatures. Um, I, I, I think this card is awesome. Number two would be Kaito Shizuki. We had a whole week on Kaito. I still think this card is really undervalued. It does have some interesting weaknesses. This card is the most play draw dependent. Like it's a very good card when you're ahead and it means you will for sure win, but it does nothing when you're behind. So that's like a really interesting problem to solve. And I think that's one of the reasons why we started to see a little bit less of it even in uh, standard, right? It, it went from like a three or four of in these Esper decks to like a one or two of because when you're on the play, it's awesome. When you're on the draw or behind, it doesn't do very much. Can that be solved, right? And we were, I even played that list like outside of even having a normal week with the um, the two mana 4 4 vehicle that can get crewed up with a, um, a loyalty, and it was awesome, awesome in that shell. Oh, with the Heart of Kieran. Heart of Kieran, yeah, that was a sweet list. I almost 5 0'd. So, small correction, we actually didn't do a week on Kaito. It was just a card that was on your mind the entire Neon Dynasty season. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, well, you kept right. on, Kaito. Like, playing Kaito lists, but we never actually... Yeah, like, I kept putting in, yeah, finding excuses, yes. And yeah, and then now there's a, even a few more cards now that, like, trigger on your extra draw step. I kind of like that 2-1 that gets a plus one, plus one every time you draw your second card. The 2-3 that loots that gets becomes a 3-3. Three, three. Uh, and unblock or in menace if you draw your second card. So anyway, Kaito, and then my third is Urza, Lord Protector slash Mightstone and Weakstone. Oh, really? Uh, I don't know if these cards are good enough. And even in my one list, it's we proposed on Friday with Mightstone and Weakstone. I cut the Singleton Urza I had in there, which is more just like for fun. But I think we just need to probably need to just put four Mightstone and Weakstone in a list, put four Urza in a list, probably put four Stern Lesson in that same list. And, uh, like, we have to try to do the thing. We just, we just have to try to do the thing. There's just no way around it. As T Tumo Catcher says, I want to follow the instructions on the box and meld these cards together. Yeah, exactly. Let's do it. <laughs> Should be pointed out, though, that on our Monday show, you, you played My Stone Weakstone in that Teleportation Circle deck, and you specifically said, do not play Urza Urza's Garbage. <laughs> Well, in that list, because I think you need to play a list where Urza is also like basically a mana rock, where you just have all instants or artifacts. You're not playing anything else. You're not playing any other creatures. You're not playing Renowned Weaponsmith. You're not playing other ramp spells. You're playing like two mana counter spells. You can play Urza on four with a counter spell up. Um, you're playing probably Stern Lesson because it lets you ramp in all your five mana artifacts you're playing. Urza lets you ramp in all your five mana artifacts on turn four. I think you just have to build your whole list around it and then see if that does it. And spoiler alert, it probably won't. <laughs> <laughs> so no love for Blood Funnel. That's probably the card that I would have to vote for first. As bad as it is, as challenging as it is, it's just like so vexingly impossible to use that I've become a little bit obsessed with it. So the, the thing about Blood Funnel that I w want to highlight is I had never seen or heard of this card. I was actually actively playing magic when the second came out. I do not ever remember seeing this card in play. I never remember opening it in a pack or having it played against me. So I was like, first of all, just shout outs for that. 
Yeah, I think you outlined uh, the recommended by Kilgore Trout. You recommend you uh, outlined Dad a lot of the questions that this card asks. Right, you need to have creatures to sacrifice or uncounterable spells. I guess. Um, I mean, I think that's where it comes down to. Like having creatures is is kind of risky. It's high risk. Like it's so bad that you can cast your spell and they can kill your creature in response, and then you will lose your spell. <laughs> Like every right. lightning bolt becomes a counter spell. So that's quite risky. But like, what about, like, I just got this vision in my head of myself having blood funnel and Lear disciple of the drowned in play at the same time. Like how amazing would that be? Or the back half of the, um, the two one that can be d- uh, disturbed. Yeah. The hermit. Yeah. Backside makes your spells uncounterable. Which is also a creature to sacrifice. Like the first spell you can cast, sack the hermit to put it in your graveyard naturally if they aren't playing non-creature spells or whatever. Uh, and then play it for, from your graveyard for free. And then you just have this spell reduction effect in play. I'm sure that this won't work. Like if this was a Pioneer legal card, I could maybe talk myself into it. But yeah, exactly. I'm sure in modern it won't actually work. But I'm just like, I'm stuck on this. So that would be at the top of my ballot. And similarly, Surge Engine was nominated. I would be voting for that as well. Not for the reasons that um, that it was nominated for necessarily, but just because you've been putting Renowned Weaponsmith into so many lists, David, and now I just want to see like what can Renowned Weaponsmith do. Brian in the episode mentioned Zerda the Dawn Waker as like a kind of a forgotten companion, and now I've just been like doing all these Skyfall <laughs> searches, like looking for things that have activated abilities or make mana for artifacts and stuff. Yeah, the other thing that I'd want to point out is the Renowned Weaponsmith plus Surge Engine are all two drops that can get bought back by um, Extraction Specialist. Yes. So I'm always looking for, like, you play Renowned Weaponsmith, and if you just have a way to to pay off the mana, then you say, oh, what happens if my Renowned Weaponsmith dies? And that's where Extraction Specialist comes in. And Extraction Specialisting back Surge Engine is also interesting because... Yeah, it technically doesn't do anything while it's not attacking, but eventually you've got all these turns, you dump all this mana into it. Um, and eventually they have to kill your attraction specialist because it has lifelink, so that it can't be erased in uh, in creature matchups. So yes. something there, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> have you seen that, uh, that comic strip? I think it must have come from The Onion, where it's the guy with the sicko shirt and he's standing outside the window. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm feeling here in these lines. And my third vote would probably have to go to the dragon card, uh, Rivaz of the Claw. Even though it doesn't work with Phyrexian Dragon Engine the way that I want it to, like the mana cannot be used to unearth, which is very sad. And if you cast it with Rivaz's ability, you don't get to draw the cards, which is also very sad. Despite all that, you know, he's just got so many sweet abilities. So Yeah, a lot, a lot of text on that card. If any of those cards win, I'd be very happy. Yes. If the other ones win, we will be very sad. No, it would be a sad Christmas, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't looked at the results yet as of this recording, so we'll see. Oh, okay. All right. Well, shall we look at some mailbag questions, David? Sure. So the first one is from Samp, who asks, The year is winding down. What is your favorite card of 2021? Now, we are assuming Samp because they reference the year running down is referring to 2022. <laughs> so that's the question we're going to answer. And we will have like an end of year kind of summary one. This is just one of the ones we'll get to uh, right now. So what was your favorite card of the year, Dan? The card that has taken up the most headspace for me is Leyline Binding. 
it started off as a card that I felt very positive about because I wanted to urge everyone to buy it. I was like very, very sure this card was going to redefine modern, possibly even pioneer. I just wanted to like get on record and say, yes, this is unique. This is extremely powerful. It's going to change things. Now, even I did not realize at the time that it was going to be so disgusting that Karuga would become a deck again, or for the first time, Karuga would become a deck. And I don't know how I feel <laughs> about that. <laughs> so like, I don't know, like, it's possible that things have gone too far, that this is actually a card destroying <laughs> the legacy of Modern and, and Pioneer. But it is the card from 2022 that you know, I, I've felt the strongest about. So I guess I'm going to call it my favorite. Yeah, it's good to get on the record too. Like, I think this card is awesome. People are going to play a bunch of these and they're going to rebuild their decks around them. And then all of that came to pass. I mean, my dream is that Leyline Binding will finally get them to pull the plug on Companion. If Karuga becomes a problematic Companion, then let's just freaking pull the plug on Companion. It's so maddening that of the 10 Companions, like, so many of them just like drew a bunch of cards. <laughs> And these are the ones that don't get nerfed by the companion tax because decks that want to draw a bunch of cards are just trying to stall and draw cards. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the reality. Anyway, your favorite card, 2022 or 2021. My favorite card of this year, I think, is Unlicensed Hearse. Oh. I think this card is really incredibly designed. One, it is colorless, so you can put it in any deck. Two, it is very powerful, right? It's seen play in Modern. It sees play in Pioneer. A lot of play in Pioneer. Three, it actually involves strategy, though. Like, Rest in Peace is almost, you know, like a butcher's tool, right? Like, there's nothing in the graveyard. Lots of colors can't interact with enchantments. This card lets you still use your graveyard. It gets bigger over time, so it becomes a threat. When do you use it? When do you not use it? Two of them against each other is interesting. But it also doesn't just, like, cold all graveyard strategies, right? It doesn't stop like cat oven necessarily, unless you like time everything right. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love this type of design. It's not just some blunt instrument that just whatever, you know, says specific, you know, some hate for, you can still do graveyard things. Do you use it against Phoenix before they have a Phoenix in the yard to try to make treasure cruise harder, et cetera, et cetera. So I really love this card. Um, it is a little bit worse than I thought it was gonna be. It's very good. I thought it was gonna be like even better. Um, but yeah, I just, I just love this card. What makes you say it's a little bit worse than you thought it was going to be? I thought like a turn two hearse would just dominate blue red to the point that like blue red would have to become less popular because everyone would play like three hearses and a turn two hearse is very good against blue red. But first of all, they just adopted multiple spell pierces and a braids in their sideboard. So they, they had to change their whole makeup of their deck fine, but it also just doesn't always win and you need to play it with creatures to crew it up. Um, and then like the second hearse is actually pretty bad. So like playing a bunch of hearses to make sure you draw one early means that you're like later hearses aren't as good. In some ways it's like a one-sided rest in peace until you get paired against a deck that just delves through it anyway. And then you realize that it's not a rest in peace. Yeah. I just, I, I love it though. Like if you cast it on turn two, it's insane against certain graveyard decks. Oh, yeah. Um, and but be, the fact that it becomes a threat, it is uh, equipment. You can like Karn to stop it from being used. I mean, it's just it does so much stuff. I just it's an interesting game piece while being powerful, while rewarding people for being skilled in a way that like Rest in Peace is just like 
a hate piece that doesn't, you know, that involves no thought. It can only be played by one color, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. All right. Next question. This one comes from D Jeff MTG. When the dust has settled, what will be the most impactful card to come out of the brothers war? And you can't cop out here and say the pain lands, which is what I did last time around. Um, I think the might will be the most impactful card. The haywire might. Yeah. Modern is the most popular format by far. There is a eminently main deckable, uh, colorless land that tutors up one mana artifacts. The decks that play that typically, not all of them, but many of them play green because they're also playing red and six. So this card is in a bunch of different decks. And as you pointed out, and an enchantment that exiles any non-land permanent is ubiquitous, so it always has targets. Uh, it also blows up the other Urza Saga. So I, and it's good against red because it gains two life and kills their Eidolon. So I just think this card is going to see play forever. Like It'll come into play the most of all the cards uh, in this entire um, set. Yeah, so I did my preseason predictions for both Modern and Pioneer. That was a few weeks ago. Now that we've seen a little bit of how things are playing out, um, I don't know what the answer is for Modern. Like, for Modern, I thought maybe Haywire might, maybe Stonebrain. Maybe it's Scrapwork Mutt, which I think I had third on the list, which, you know, continues to exceed expectations in Modern. But in Pioneer, I think there is a clear winner right now in Pioneer. It's the 2-1 for one that is just like a human (laughs) recruitment officer. Not because that card does anything special. These are cards that I almost, like, I make a note of them and I just never think about them again. It's another 2-1 human for one. Who cares? Well, it turns out it's slightly better than all the other human 2-1s for one. And it turns out that that deck is, like, pretty good, especially when you're expecting to face a lot of mono green. So in terms of, like, which Brothers War card are you going to see the most, yeah, Recruitment Officer is, I think, by far the most played card from the set and the most successful. And it's going to continue to be that way until a better 2-1 gets printed. Yeah, I think the one out is Third Path Iconoclast, which could be like slightly less played than the one drop and slightly less played than the might. But between the two formats, you might just see it more collectively. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know that we we think of Third Path Iconoclast in terms of like what unique new stuff it can do. But whether that sees like broader metagame adoption, I think the jury is still out. So that would be like a called shot if we think that's going to actually be like a long-term impactful card whereas a recruitment officer at least we know that yes as of now today it is a staple card of not just mono white but like various humans decks yeah but it's like eventually they'll print a slightly better yeah they will version of this better savannah lions <laughs> and then everyone will be like i don't remember because there's been a lot of two ones that are a little better than exactly <laughs> so it's in a long line, a healthy line of <laughs> one man, two ones <laughs> or one twos or, you know, three, one under this condition or one, two that gets a plus one, plus one counter. Right. So our next question is specifically for you, David comes to us from Mr. Smoke. Mr. Spoke wants to know if you have any updates on the 12 deck sketches that we put up on the website a few weeks back. Um, that's an article. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, do you have any standouts so far or are these decks that, you know, you're just going to keep tinkering with and working through as the season progresses. 
Yeah, so we obviously have a somewhat regimented schedule, right? We try to talk about a car a week. We try to talk about our brews from the last week. But I'm sending out weird ideas or interactions all the time to, like, the guys in the chat. Like, is this a thing? That doesn't always add up to either a deck worth playing or even a card worth thinking about or discussing for an entire episode. So I'm always updating and, and working on lists and working on cards that, you know, I've got a bunch, I was just telling Dan, I got a bunch of arcane proxy lists that are different than the ones that we played, right? That are trying to do different stuff with them. We even updated some of the third eye path lists before we talked about the, the third eye, you know, card last week. And then we had pretty good results with one of the lists. We're, we're making some updates and then even playing it, we found, again, Dan and I wanted to, you know, get rid of the Mox Amber, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of moving parts and pieces and, um, you know, we'll probably just process them as we get through our schedule. Normally what happens is there's a slight break between sets. We haven't, <laughs> there aren't a bunch of cards we're talking about. And then we go to like pet decks or things I've been wanting to work on for a while. Yeah, exactly. So of the 12 in that article, I think half of them we've kind of played with a little bit. And, you know, the four third path iconoclast decks, uh, we talked on Monday about the blue white Tezzeret combat thresher deck, which I'm excited to try. And I think you actually ended up trying that landfall deck with escape shifts and the Felidar retreats. Yeah, I did. Yep. That was pretty bad. Uh, but yeah, it's like, well, like that was bad, but it pointed maybe a way to somewhere better. But I can't say that that's the case yet for um, the new Titania. And then like the white black uh, prototype list I proposed in there really should have been divided up into like more of an aggro list and then more of a mid-range list. And the mid-range list that I sort of developed from there was also proposed on our Friday episode, like the white black prototype refurbish shell. Yeah. So if you want to see like the first drafts, um, the link will be in the description, but you know, these are constantly getting workshopped and this is just a small portion of what's lives rent free in David's head. Like right after you <laughs> sent me these 12, like you then like went on a big kick on stern lesson, the two in a blue draw two discard one, like a power stone. And like, I think that one's actually extremely promising. Like, I don't know, like maybe that should be a whole week. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. I, I've been having fun brewing it up and playing with that. So yeah, exactly. So there, there's lots of stuff happening, but um, haven't had time to test a lot of them outside the confines of, you know, recording and <laughs> testing out the specific list of the week. Next question is about Pioneer. So I'm going to kick this one to you first. It's from Stevie B who asks, what's the best Pioneer package that nobody is playing right now? Right now, no one is playing Sylvan Carry Added or Grow Spiral. I don't know if they go in the same deck. You know, we've seen that in the past. I think you can't play all of them together because you don't have expressive iteration to prevent you from flooding. But in general, Grow Spiral lists, I think, I think Grow Spiral is the most powerful card that's seeing no play in any deck in the format. Um, I think it probably would need to be like a band controllish shell. I just, I don't know exactly what, what needs to be in it. I think playing Girl Spiral and like 27 lands and sensor, there is a shell there. So there's kind of two parts to that, right? Like what makes Girl Spiral so good? Cause it's not immediately obvious that it's a powerful card. And then B, if it is so good, then why is it not seeing play? I think... Well, first of all, Growth Spiral is way above the Pioneer power level. It's an Explorer that can be cast at instant speed. Explorer is, is way over Pioneer's power level as well. Um, would never be printed into a modern set. And 
this requires you to play blue green so already your mana starts to get bad because you need that on turn two the ramping aspect there's so few efficient ways to ramp right so i'm, I'm naming those two and we've talked about it before right we what are your one drops going to be to interact is it mana elf is it red mana with you know blue cantrips is it black interaction or is it a white one mana creature and at the time, we outlined that there are these other decks that play Sylvan Carry Added or Grow Spiral or both on turn two and kind of catch up with their powerful four and five drops. Now, as they make two and three drops increasingly more powerful, uh, it's harder and harder to catch up. The mana starts to punish you. Do you add that fourth color to play Omnath? Omnath does not impress me in Pioneer. So I don't know what the answer is, but Grow Spiral is way above the power level of Pioneer and was the best card in standard the entire time it was there. Um, and so what can we do with that? I, I, I'm not sure. Like you would think that you could just splash for it in, in blue-white control, which is very popular. But you know, the more I face that deck, the more I see that they, they really need all their land slots to be... They need to leave a lot of land slots open for their utility. And if they had to add a third color, that would be a bigger cost than one might initially think. So they just don't do it. So you actually have to be specifically blue-green or like some kind of multicolor ramp. Yeah, like could you just abandon some of the like clunkier parts of the Lotus Field piece and just because you're playing 27 lands, just grow spiral into Lotus Field and still play like Lotus Field to Fairy, but none of the like cards that combo with Lotus Field, like the one white, one three, maybe just like a two of out of sideboard if it's good against certain aggro decks. Huh. It's something like that. I, I I I think Grow Spiral into an early Teferi seems really good to me. Seems insane to me. With no creatures, like I don't think you want to play the four four wolf, which is what something I thought you could do, and I don't think you can do anymore. Interesting. What about the Sylvan Caryatids? Niv Mizzet would be like the last deck still featuring Caryatid, and that that's not seeing a lot of play. Yeah, it's not seeing any play. You don't, I haven't played against it in a long time. The mid-range lists all play like fires with Karuga, right? So you can't play carry added there. Correct. That's like the mid-rangiest mid-range list you'd normally see 5 0 Or it's like Grixis, like removal, 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 like a couple of two-for-ones at three or four mana, nothing else. You're more likely to see a Sylvan Karyatid as like a flex slot ramp card in mono green these days than anything else. Yes, agree. But in like, so rampant growth is allegedly too broken to be printed into standard and would be way too good, whatever, by the transitive property in Pioneer, allegedly. But Sylvan Carry added if it doesn't die, so that means we can't play Rast, that's the one thing we're gated on, is better than rampant growth because it blocks, you know, the 2 1 you just said was the most impactful card from, or it blocks Thalia. Right, it's a ramp spell. It isn't affected by Thalia. And it fixes our mana perfectly. So, like, what aren't we doing with this card? I'm not saying it should be the best card in Pioneer, which it was for many months. But I, I it's like, no one can use this card. That just, something's wrong here. Huh. There's no four drop that we just want to play on three that's worth it. Explain this to me, Daniel. <laughs> well, I think part of it is that it doesn't block as well as I thought it would. A second part is that if you're in a controlling strategy, you're very likely to play a lot of triomes, which means you're not even going to be like on curve necessarily. So 
you can't like build a game plan where you have to do that two for a ramp when you're also playing all these tap lands. So in that sense, like if I'm just trying to survive until a later part of the game, like yeah, it doesn't have to be curated. It could just be land drop, land drop, leyline binding, temporary lockdown, wipe the board, fires Karuga. And I achieve the same thing. Yeah, and temporary lockdown being uh, becoming more common in blue white is like a really big deal. You referenced it uh, on the Friday episode affecting, you know, a deck that's playing a bunch of small artifacts to trigger. But that I mean that changes everything. Like if you don't have an actual disruptive element, like a three mana sweep everything is unbeatable. Like you there that's why there's no I saw Claudio made a really interesting post on Twitter. He was just like, I've been experimenting with the uh the the teething wormlet and the the Yoatian. Uh it's like the green white one one that gets a plus one plus one counter whenever artifact comes into play. He's like, all none of this stuff matters because they just play this three mana enchantment. And if you don't have disruption for it, it just kills everything. It exiles everything. All your counters are gone permanently or your tokens. So it's extremely punishing. Like for the yeah. third pathless kills all the prototypes, all the spring leaf drums, all the tokens are gone forever. Even the Mishra's research desk, the research desk did nothing wrong. <laughs> like what, Why is that in a temporary lockdown? It's all gone. And Karuka plays Four copies main deck. Blue White is often playing two copies now, plus some of the sideboard. Yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I thought it was going to be like Liliana pushes Sylvan Curated out of the format, but Liliana is, turns out, not playable. But Curated's, yeah, also not popular for other reasons. Yeah. But if you're asking me what it is, I think Gross Spiral is the most underplayed card. Nobody plays it. This card was bannable in standard. So there's something. It, it's bannable in the most powerful standard format we've almost ever had i mean there's a blue green lands deck but it plays grazer instead of spiral it turns out that just blocking a few turns before you lotus combo matters more yeah well from pioneer we have a question about modern specifically for me (laughs) yeah georgie boy 39 wants to know dan have you accepted that faithless looting was actually a good ban where is this aggression coming from (laughs) Georgie, why do you hurt me like this? There's a lot implied in this question, but I maintain that, you know, okay, so the Faithless Looting ban happened, what, one year before MH2? A year and a half before MH2? So whatever you're thinking about how modern is now has no relationship to Faithless Looting. Like, yes, they crafted a perfect MH2 metagame that's balanced against itself, and the graveyard plays a very, very minuscule role in that metagame. They made it so that's okay, specifically persists an archon of cruelty becomes like the extent to which the graveyard is utilized in modern. Well, and and, and living end. Sure, sure. But I mean like even that is like that's part of the cascade package, which they really pushed. Like they did not have to put Charlotte's agent into the format. Like I, I really wish they hadn't. Like now that we've seen how it plays out. Agree, agree. Like, it just yeah. makes everything, like, too railroaded. So, I said this in our episode a month or two ago, where we talked about the state of the modern unban list. You could reintroduce Faithless Looting to the format now, today, and it would just be, like, another strong pillar. Like, it doesn't actually interact with any existing decks. It would just be its own thing. So, if we're talking about how modern would be now with Faithless Looting, I think 
we can't picture it. It would be something totally new. Now, was it a correct ban at the time? If that's what Georgie Boy means, we can agree to disagree on that. Modern survived for many years with Faithless Looting being one of the best cards, but there's always going to be a best card in the format. They've swung the pendulum far away from the graveyard right now. Why not move it back? Why not move it back? So if Faithless Looting was in the format now, do you think it would be better? The format would be better. Would would have gained something from Faithless Looting being unbanned? Would gameplay be better? Well, I enjoy variety. I think it would add two or three decks to the format. Which are Dredge and Phoenix? Something like that. For starters. And then, you know, maybe some third deck, some kind of reanimator deck that is more looting focused. But, I mean, who knows? I mean, it's such an obscenely powerful card that you can start with that and come up with, like, those are your main archetypes and there's also some side archetypes. Now, that changes what people have to play, right? You have to allocate more sideboard slots to your endurances or whatever else. And some people don't like that. They don't like the randomness of modern matchups and having to draw your specific hate piece in time. But I'm okay with that, personally. I would like to see that happen. <laughs> okay, I mean, that seems a pretty measured response. So you do think it should still be unbanned, though? That This is the official take of the CEO of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. Well, to George C. Boy's question, did I accept that it was, that it was a good ban? Was. Uh, no, I do not accept that. Especially if he's talking about how it would impact modern if it was legal today. But I'm, I think it was a great ban at the time, although I've kind of come around to Dan's point of view that we should just start unbanning random cards in modern to mix things up. I mean, <laughs> And Pioneer, if you're letting me. <laughs> it was banned with, with Hogak. Like, yeah, okay, you can't take Hogak out and let's see how looting does in, in the format. Well, it, it was dominating the format before Hogak. It was one of the better decks. It was two or two or three of the best decks, but people survived. Like Dredge did not win every week, for example. Anyway. <laughs> so you do not accept that it was a good ban and you think it would be a good unban right now. Those are the two statements. Yeah, it would not break modern now. I think it, it would add decks to modern and that I think is inherently good. It would give modern some of its classic flavor. Now, I know people are going to say, oh, such and such thing would be broken. I doubt that that would be the case. Graveyard hate is easy to get. Endurance exists, like, it's fine. Also, this is not maybe how Wizards thinks about it, but I I think this is a reasonable way to think about it. Unbanning cards that are cheap, like a common, like Faithless Looting, you should be doing more frequently because unbanning it is costs way less money. <laughs> like, no one's going to be mad that they had to buy four Faithless Lootings. <laughs> Well, if the card is cheap, that means it will never get unbanned. Like, there's, they have no incentive to unban this. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> All right, on to our next question here. First Turn Negator says, In the last few months, I've transitioned from brewing and modern to brewing and pioneer. One of the things I've had a hard time adjusting to is the larger number of lopsided matchups. After a league or two with a new brew, I'm having a harder time knowing if my deck synergies weren't up to snuff versus I just hit a bad matchup and vice versa. Any tips for quickly discerning how to identify successes or areas needing improvement without playing hundreds of matches? Yeah, this comes up a lot. I think Dan was just sending me a message the other night. You get all <laughs> agonized over the uh, 14th and 15th sideboard card and the 25th land. Am I going to be short white uh, for my splash color here? 
And then you queue directly into Lotus Field and none of the decisions you made matter other than can you like mulligan to your hand disruption or counter spells. Yes, I, w- I was grossing about this uh, just the other day. <laughs> it's like, oh, turn one Temple of Mystery. Never mind. Check the sideboard, see if I have any interaction or not. Yeah, so the first question you need to ask yourself, first turn negator, is why are my matchups bad matchups, right? So it doesn't matter if your synergies are up to snuff if they're always going to come online too late. Like I propose a lot of lists in our like Gmail discussion and I never play them because I know even if I did the thing on turn four, you know, I'm playing a deck with no removal or something. So white and or red and or mono green are always going to beat me. And so, and maybe even mono blue. So if if you play those four and say, oh, I just played my bad matchups, it's like, well, <laughs> yes, that's true. You did just play your bad matchups, but <laughs> that that tells you that there's something fundamentally wrong with your entire deck strategy, right? Your synergies didn't come online because they're constructed in such a way that maybe they can't come online in a reasonable amount of time against a reasonable amount of the field. I'm intrigued by this idea of a lopsided matchup. I think that if you just look at the existing top decks, tier one, tier two, and imagine them goldfishing, that is to say, playing solitaire essentially, many of them are built to just snowball. Like if they are allowed to execute their strategy, they will win by a huge, overwhelming margin every game. And that applies to both aggro and control. The mono white aggro, the bushwrecker red or mono red aggro, even spirits. The plan is to just run someone over and don't give them a chance. On the flip side, Mono Green Ramp, or Mono Green Devotion as it's called, um, Karuga Fires, even Blue White to some degree, they're just like, my plan is to go really hard on this one thing, a Lotus Field especially. So where does interaction even come in? I mean, as long as these decks are popular, there's always going to be that chance that if you get paired against these decks, they're going to try to do something lopsided to you. And where does that leave you? Are you going to say, okay, I'm going to try to intervene in this, disrupt you and fight back so we can have like a back and forth game where you're trying to impose your will on it and I'm trying to stop you? Or am I just trying to do my own lopsided thing? Yeah. So if you're, I guess the main thing is if you're a deck that doesn't have a lot of interaction, then your proactive plan has to be better than whatever your opponent's doing. Either it has to be faster or it has to disrupt your opponent somehow while it's being executed. That's why you don't see us propose a lot of super proactive lists on here, because I think those are the easiest lists to find. So we know at the time, what if you want to call it the critical turn, if we, Dan and I can date ourselves here, uh, for Mono Green or Lotus Field is, and no other deck can beat it in terms of sheer speed, right? So you then, therefore, you have to play interaction, right? So the other aggro decks are all disruptive aggro decks. Um, Unless you can go under mono green, that's what red does, right? Or the the like red green vehicles list actually goes under mono green. So you kind of need to see the where you are in the beatdown. And if you're too slow for the proactive decks without interaction, those are always going to be your bad matchups. And then if you're doing that and you still aren't beating the other mid-range lists, or there's other lists like blue-white control goes over the top of you, and that's where I sometimes you've heard me have like bad leagues. That's a space I often find is I'm not quite disruptive enough to stop the linear decks, the mono greens, etc. And then you play control on the other end. You're like, well, damn, I, I actually don't have enough card advantage, etc. to battle them. So um, it's hard to say without exactly knowing uh, the specific list that first turn negator was trying. But 
that that's just some guidelines, I guess I can say from my own experience in the format. So if the question is specifically, how do you identify areas for improvement or areas that are working well without playing so many matches? Um, I mean, it's almost like unconnected to the lopsided thing, but I think first Renegator is getting at the, the fact that it, sometimes it feels bad to be playing these lopsided matchups and just trying to learn something. You have a question in mind and you feel like you don't get to answer it because you keep hitting these other matchups that play out a certain way. Yeah. I think part of that is forget game one, just ignore game one, the game where you don't have the interaction in your deck, let's say. Like I complained about that Lotus Field matchup to David and I still won the match once I actually got to play <laughs> with my sideboard cards. Your only win of the league, in fact, it turned out. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I mean, people in, in modern are quite used to this, or they used to be back in the Faithless Looting era, right? Like sometimes you just have to give up on game one and, and win games two and three. The other way is, okay, if you don't want to play all these matchups, you can kind of just, there are not that many decks in play in here. You can just kind of take the top five or seven of them and just like imagine, okay, you know what they're going to do. They go very hard on one thing. And just like imagine what, what do I think I'm going to do against all those things? And sometimes the answer might be, actually, I'm not really set up for that in game one. Okay, so you can learn that actually without playing. Yeah, exactly. Because you know what the turns look like. Turn one, Savannah Lion. Turn two, Thalia. Turn three, Adeline, right? You can imagine what your opening does against that. Turn one, Elf. Turn two, Kiora. Another Elf. Turn three, you know, whatever. Turn one, I get Thought Seized by Mono Black. Turn two, they play the three, two that makes a blood. Turn three, they play Fable. Just think about each each of your plays. Okay, am I leaving? Do I have mana up to counter the Kiora here? Do I always have to tap out for this thing that makes... Less mana than Cura does, etc. Yeah, exactly. All right, Chattanooga asks, now the Pioneer RCQ season has passed, Pioneer events in my local area have been decimated while Modern is going strong. Is there something truly different between the two formats, or does Pioneer just lack the history investment that people have with Modern? Or is my local area just an outlier? I would say their local area is certainly not an outlier. Modern is the most popular format by far. Uh, I don't think it's close, and it's certainly more popular than Pioneer, even after the uh, RCQ season has passed. Yeah, we ended up actually kind of pre-answering this question in, in last episode, kind of looking at the effect of transitioning the format of the regional championship from Pioneer to, I think, it's standard for the next one. We're seeing lower numbers in Pioneer for sure, and definitely what Chattanooga is saying, the lack of history or investment has got to be part of it. Modern at least in theory, is, is the format that, you know, it's, it's your lifetime format. It's wherever you joined the game, you know, Modern was there. Whether that's actually true right now, I'm, I'm not totally sure. <laughs> but I do think that, you know, it would be nice to get more of that kind of shared project where everyone who cares about, let's just say, competitive magic is playing the same format. And I think it actually might have been a mistake to allow stores to schedule any format they want for their RCQs. So what happened was that, okay, the RC is going to be Pioneer, but your local store might choose to run Modern or even Sealed Deck or Pioneer or even Standard for their, for their little RC qualifier that they get to run. So you can't even say that this is the Pioneer season because, you know, the different stores might not all be running Pioneer, for example. Uh, I'm not the only one to say this, but I think it, it might be nice to at least return to an era where okay, we're all just going to play the same format for at least three months, right? It's a Pioneer RC and we should all play Pioneer. And then we can switch to Standard for the next three months. 
Also, I think Pioneer has been really harmed by the fact that Standard was like a garbage fire for like the two years before or during Pioneer's existence. Because in theory, Pioneer was supposed to be the transition, right? Modern no longer is a transition from playing your Standard cards. And the history of Modern, as Dan has kind of alluded to, is totally vaporized by the fact that it's functionally just the Modern Horizon 2 sets with a handful of interactive spells, not from those sets. Pioneer is supposed to be this gateway. Oh, I've been playing all this standard at the stores, and then when I'm done, oh, after rotation, this is basically like a super extended, right? That has a little bit different gameplay because there's, whatever, one mana elves and a few extra cards that they don't normally have, like, aren't ubiquitously available in standard. What happened was, you know, standard became very unpopular due to, you know, lots of things we've gone through over and over, but like COVID and fire design, etc. Arena. And now there, you don't even physically own cards you care about keeping, right? You're, you have an arena collection. Maybe you just play arena for an hour a day and uh, you don't really like standard. You play alchemy. Well, now you don't give a shit about Pioneer, nor should you. <laughs> um, you have no investment. You have no need to like use your cards because you don't own any cards. You've been, uh, you know, just collecting random stuff. So I think that's part of it as well. Yeah, I, I agree. The concept of Pioneer as the format you go to after you played standard and like formed a relationship with these cards and these strategies these cards were designed for a standard for a standard that nobody really plays anymore outside of arena so in that sense yeah it's not able to fulfill its purpose and people are not able to get that level of investment with it which is sad yeah i mean it is what it is (laughs) (laughs) all right so i think that'll do it for our, our mailbag segment Thanks again to everyone who submitted a question. Of course, if you want to pepper us with your questions, you can always do that through the Discord by becoming a patron. We like to do these mailbag segments from time to time. It's always fun to check in, see what's on everyone's mind. Now, before we sign off, we did promise you a couple deck lists, our picks of the week, if you like. And we've got one for Modern, one for Pioneer. These are just decks that caught our eye from this week. David, I'm going to start with you, our pioneer expert. Uh, What have you been thinking about this week? So one of the things I've been talking about, and I walked through my sort of thinking on this uh, on the Friday episode is, you know, mono white is very good against mono green, but it's bad against like the rest of the format, basically. And so I was experimenting with some ideas that are still disruptive, still keeping some of the core disruptive elements, specifically like Thalia or whatever. But can we build a way to still do that? But make ourselves a little better against decks that are very removal heavy. And typically we're talking about Rakdos is the good one, but people I've been 5 0 a lot with just like Grixis removal piles, right? So one of the things that I'm always looking for is people who are like teching out humans to actually like think about this. Don't just play a few extra cyborg cards. What can you do in your main deck? So Z-Kind, I'm assuming this is that kind. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, who is who's an excellent player has built an Azorius humans list. So the cards added aren't that important, but they're playing Denik, uh, which is a main deck way to interact with Grease Fang and a, at least a two for one against removal decks. Harbin Vanguard a- Aviator. We talked about this just on f- flat rate. We're talking about a two mana, three power flyer. So it's just your clock is so much faster. Four Reflector Mages removal instead of a very easy to remove uh, Werewolf and a one of Spell Pierce. Now, the choices are not that techy. The thing that's interesting to me is that Zach understood that the blue splash was borderline free because of Fortified Beachhead. Now, we highlighted that 
there was really no soldier deck. This is not a soldier deck. There's no soldier synergies. It just is the case that a lot of humans are soldiers. So we talked about a couple weeks ago how deep into these soldier synergies you wanted to get. He's just like dipping his toe in and it's basically just saying, I just want the soldiers to make my mana perfect. The beachhead is going to come into play untapped because Kytheon is a soldier. Recruitment officer is a soldier. Denik is a soldier. Harbin is a soldier. Lieutenant. Thalia is a soldier. That's enough. That's all you need. And once you have this, you the blue splash basically becomes free because Hallowed Fountain, you're not often in a race in your mono white deck. They're playing no islands at all. Artakar Waste is a new card. As Dan pointed out, the Painlands are actually probably the most influential of the new cards. And now all of a sudden you have a main deck Denic. You actually have attacking flying creatures. Your cyborg can add spell pierce. And you're so much better situated to alter your matchups in a way that just playing like, oh, I have four wedding announcements in my cyborg, but I'm going to lose every game one and most game two and threes against red black. Uh, I just think it's a really techy idea. There's no fancy soldier. And yeah, Fortify Beachhead even has extra text if you get up to six mana. You just pump all your soldiers. It's just, it's just such a free splash. Uh, I, I really love this. I cannot decide whether the Fortify Beachhead is like the payoff or the enabler for this splash. Can we put the, like, why not both gif <laughs> with the little girl shrugging her shoulders? Well, it, it does carry risk, right? If you do not have a soldier in player in your hand, it's a tap land, which aggro decks abhor tap lands. There's 17 soldiers plus four mutavolts. It is good that you can do this splash without giving up mutavolt. That, that is something important that uh, Zach Kine has identified here. But what if you have to play a tapped beachhead? I mean... That seems devastating. Maybe it's the case that, okay, but we, we want the blue creatures so much that we're willing to risk that. Like, do we really believe strongly in Reflector Mage better than Brutal Cathar? Oh, yeah, it's not even close. Interesting. Okay, so you think it's just straight up better than Brutal Cathar? The problem with Brutal Cathar is that a lot of times you have to make an attack, and if they have removal, you lose. But if the, you don't attack, then you also lose. So you just say, like, all right, if you have removal, like, you kill my Brutal Cathar and then Shielder comes back into play, like the game is over. I mean, you just cannot play this way. I see. It also turns on push by itself. So yeah, like you often, you often have to brave to protect your Brutal Cathar instead of getting to get your nut attack in. And this, this deck is just saying like, I Reflector Mage your Shielder. Okay, I took two damage, fine. Now what? You can't play Shielder on your next turn. And now my Brave is saved because you can kill... Reflector Mage has already done his damage. Now I'm using Brave as, as, a, as a way to finish the game. Huh. Reflector Mage banned in standard. Brutal Cathar never banned in standard. That's all you need to know. Simple <laughs> equation. Growth Spiral banned in standard. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Play it in, play it in Pioneer. It's not, it's not complicated. We don't have to overthink this. So you get to keep Brave the Elements because everything's white. You keep your Muta Vaults. Maybe you activate the Fortified Beachhead. I guess you lose Shefet Dunes if that was a card that you've frequently found yourself activating. Yeah, I mean, I could see it. We'll, we'll see if more people pick this deck up. Yeah, it might not prove to be the right deck or not, but I think it's like this is the type of experimentation that nobody thinks about. It's just like, oh, I just added an extra cyborg card. Oh, it sucks when you like lose the matchup lottery and I don't get to play a model in green. It's like, you can think <laughs> Zach kind like used his giant brain and made some interesting choices and maybe he like altered the matchup spread exactly like you should be doing that's what brewing is 
All right, that's Pioneer, Dan. What do you have for us in Modern? All right, so my pick of the week for Modern comes to us from Anthony Manito, friend of the podcast. He has I Play Bad Decks on Magic Online and Twitch. He's actually been on here like three, four times now. This deck is not a 5-0, but I feel like it still deserves an award. He was very excited. He was in Discord the other day telling us about it. he just gotten a beautiful 3-2. This is a deck where a 3-2 will feel like a 5-0 because it's, it's so sweet. It's so crazy. It's a five-color control deck that uses Gifts Ungiven as the finisher. What does that mean? Well, we're, we're in modern here, so five-color means, you know, fetch lands and triomes and shocks, etc. With that mana base, you have your Leyline Binding, card of the year perhaps, <laughs> for 2022. <laughs> and Shadow Prophecy, a card that's, you know, Mord and I really like this, although we, we've come to understand that the incidental life loss can be quite punishing, but Anthony says, okay, I can handle that. Four Leyline Binding, four Shadow Prophecy, the full domain payoffs, and four of David's favorite, Sylvan Karyatid, giving that a chance here in Modern as well. So those are your four ofs, along with four Gifts Ungiven and four Fatal Push. We're trying to defend, we're trying to remove things, we're trying to draw cards. So what's special about this? Well, because of Gifts Ungiven, Anthony has allowed himself to go truly overboard. <laughs> He's got uh, about a dozen just random one-offs here that Gifts can find. Um, what does a Gifts package mean? Well, in the past it has meant like, okay, you, you get uh, an Umbria Rights and you get uh, Iona Shield of Ameria and then you fail to find the other two cards. They have to put them both in your graveyard and then you can Umbria Rights your Iona back into play. So Anthony has that here, right? He's going with Sarah's Emissary instead of Iona. The other thing you can do is if you really want a certain spell, you can put that spell uh, along with a Snapcaster Mage and like a Regrowth Effect and then just by the numbers, you will eventually get the spell. You know, maybe they'll they'll make you cast the regrowth of the Snapcaster Mage first, but you'll eventually get the thing you want. So what what is so special that it's worth spending all this time and effort to get? Well, it turns out that Anthony has been going very, very deep on this infinite combo with Vadrox Apex of Thunder. And it's not just infinite, it's actually like a like exponential combo. Is that the correct way to describe this? You have to walk me through it. I think I know how it works, but I need you to walk me through it. <laughs> All right, let's 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 start with Vadrex Apex of Thunder, a card that uh, you know, we have been paid good money by Watsi to brew with this card. Yes. Blue, red, white, elemental dinosaur cat with mutate. The mutate cost is four. So its, it's base stats are 3-3 three, three flying first strike. However, the where Vadrex is really interesting is when you mutate it. Whenever this creature mutates, you may cast target non-creature card with CMC three or less from your graveyard without paying its mana cost. So, okay, you get to free cast something, big deal. But what's interesting is that that does not exile the spell. After Vagerak is done casting it, the thing you cast remains in the graveyard. And because of the weird way that mutate works, uh, you can keep like stacking more and more copies of a mutate onto the same creature, and then maybe you'll trigger multiple mutates. You can like mutate a Vagerok onto something and some other mutant and then trigger the mutate again. And you can even mutate a Vagerok onto itself. Like if you have two copies of Vagerok, mutate them onto the same creature, Sylvan Karyatid in this case, that's 
where this is the Sylvan characters coming back into the picture. Then you will get to do Vagerok's ability twice. The second Vagerok gives you two free casts from the graveyard. And if you can keep adding more Vagerok's to this stack of mutants, like you have a Sylvan carry head that keeps sprouting dinosaur cat heads from it, like more and more heads every time you put another copy of Vagerok onto it, you can just recast a spell. The same spell even, because the spell never leaves the graveyard. All right, so is this actually possible? Yes, well, it turns out there is a spell that can just double Vagerok. It just creates an additional copy of Vagerok. And then when Vagerok ETBs, does this mutate thing, it copies that spell again, which creates another Vagerok, which triggers two mutates now, and you get to keep doing it, and you keep getting more and more copies of Vagerok. So one, then two, then four, then eight. Does that make sense? Yes. And the spell we're talking about is Double Measure from Strixhaven. Blue-green instant. Copy target creature spell you control that is a creature on the stack. Except that it's not legendary if the spell you're casting is legendary. Then the copy uh, becomes a, a permanent token. But that's actually not going to happen because we're not making a separate Vagerok. We're just putting <laughs> Vagerok as a mutant onto the Sylvan Karyatid. So we cast Vagerok from hand, mutating it onto the Karyatid. We respond by double majoring the Vagerok. Now we have two Vagerok on the stack. The first one is the fake Vagerok. That resolves first. Targets the Karyatid, triggers its little effect. It rebuys double major, sees that the original Vagerok is still on the stack. So double major creates another Vagerok. That one resolves first, and now you get two Vagerok triggers from your Sylvan Karyatid. One recasts double major, and the other recasts lightning bolt. And that's it. That's all you need. It just keeps going. You actually get like an extreme excess number of spells from doing this. And so you need some kind of way that actually damages your opponent in the graveyard. Is that just to end the game? Otherwise, you're just drawing for it, basically? Precisely. Well, the Gifts Ungiven does it. So yeah, Gifts Ungiven needs to put either the Lightning Bolt, which is here, one copy, or the Coligan's Command, which is also one copy. And Anthony has posted these hilarious screenshots of both Lightning Bolt and K-Command delivering exponential damage <laughs> for lethal off Aedrock. Like very expensive. Like, is this actually good or is this just like a cool style points? Uh, who cares? Why not both? But it's just so sweet. Yeah, I like it. I, I really, uh, I really like it. Uh, uh, Vadrock in general, I feel like there's some potential there, right? I mean, the card just is so unique. I mean, the combo Vadrock double major. Sylvan Curator, that, that feels like a pioneer combo, right? I'm surprised that this is a modern combo. It existed for a little while. They would like copy, they would target the um the treasure making dragon. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The gold span dragon. So I mean, I think somebody like a really good grinder top aided with it. And then a few I've played against a few other people who like obviously didn't really know how it worked. So I just like, okay. <laughs> I just decimate them, but I'm interested in trying a version of this in Pioneer. We just said Sylvan Karyatid was underplayed. It's go time. Exactly. <laughs> Grow Spiral is a copyable card with Vadrock. I think the hardest part is having a spell in your graveyard that deals damage to players. There, there really isn't one that you want to play in Pioneer, but you need something. Well, I would do the one that does one damage that is functionally a land. Ah, yeah. Okay. Spikefield Hazard. Yeah. I guess K-Command is sort of playable. Sort of. No. 
Well, we're already playing Sylvan Karyatid and Vadrock, so that's all the colors I want, I think. Okay. All right, Spikefield Hazard. There you go. All right, love it. This might be the future or something. <laughs> Food for thought. Vadrock gifts with double measure. Kudos to Anthony for another sweet brew. Yeah, absolutely. Super sweet. All right. I think that is where we will leave it for today. Thanks again, everyone who sent in a question. If we didn't get to yours, we'll hopefully cover it in the next mailbag. Yeah, there were a lot of end of year questions that we will address in our end of year wrap up. So there was lots of questions about naughty and nice list and all that stuff. We're not, it's not Christmas yet. So we, you know, we got a couple of weeks here. Exactly. Exactly. But if you want to watch the Mariah Carey Christmas special, you can go ahead. No need to wait. <laughs> That's exactly. Fire it up. Get the computer ready. Get the kids out. The popcorn. All right. Take care, David. Thanks. All right. Bye. Deck lists for this episode can be found at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. And don't forget to follow us in your podcast app to hear new episodes as soon as they drop. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. Join the Faithless family and help support the show at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. 